Psalm 141. A psalm of David. Lord, I cry out to you. Make haste to me. Give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity, and do not let me eat of their delicacies. Let the righteous strike me, it shall be a kindness, and yet let him rebuke me, it shall be as excellent oil, let not my head refuse it. For still my prayer is against the deeds of the wicked. Their judges are overthrown by the sides of the cliff, and they hear my words, for they are sweet. Our bones are scattered at the mouth of the grave, as when one plows and breaks up the earth. But my eyes are upon you, O God the Lord. In you I take refuge. Do not leave my soul destitute. Keep me from the snares they have laid for me and from the traps of the workers of iniquity. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I escape safely. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this is, at least in one way, a very unusual psalm that uh, prayer that we find in verses 3 to 5, and especially in verse 5, is something that's quite unique, I think. Let the righteous strike me, it shall be a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it shall be as excellent oil. It's also a psalm that has some very difficult parts to it. I think that the difficulty of the psalm begins at the end of verse 5 where we read, For still my prayer is against the deeds of the wicked, and then continues into verse 6, Their judges are overthrown by the sides of the cliff, and they hear my words, for they are sweet. And we'll have to deal with those difficulties as we uh, work our way through the psalm. But the setting of the psalm is uh, a setting uh, of trouble and oppression for David. He makes it very clear in verse 19, keep me, he says, from the snares they have laid for me. Enemies are attacking him, enemies are making his life difficult. And this uh, trouble which is coming to David is also trouble for his people, those who follow David. As he indicates in verse 7 when he says, our bones are scattered at the mouth of the grave. In this trouble then, In this setting of trouble, David turns to the Lord for help against his enemies, but also for help for himself, and for help so that he may not fall into the temptations which these attacks of his enemies cause in his life. So we... Uh, look at this psalm under the theme praying for help against ourselves. And we divide the psalm into four parts. In verses 1 and 2, we have that introductory cry for help. In verses 3 to 5, we have that prayer for preservation 
against temptation. In verse 6, we have that um, very difficult statement about their judges being overthrown. And then in verses 7 to 10, David taking refuge in the Lord. Now, verse 1 has nothing really very unusual in it, and we're not going to spend a lot of time looking at that verse because there are some other verses in the psalm that are going to take considerable time to get through. So what we have there in verse 1 is, first of all, David uh, calling attention, the attention of the Lord to himself and, and giving notice, as it were, to the Lord that he's calling to him. And he then says to the Lord, make haste to me, that is, my need is urgent, hurry up and come to my help, because if you delay, I may well be overwhelmed altogether. And then he asks God to hear the words of his prayer when he cries to him. It's in verse 2 that we see something that's quite unusual. David says there, let my prayer be set before you as incense. When David refers to incense here, of course, he's referring to the offerings of incense that were made in the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, There was in the holy place of the tabernacle and the temple a an altar of incense that stood immediately in front of the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the place where God lived, the place where God was enthroned. Remember the Ark of the Covenant, which stood in the most holy place, is called his throne, or sometimes the footstool of his throne. So that altar of incense stood right there in front of the veil, right at the entrance to the most holy place. And there were no animal sacrifices offered on that altar, but instead offerings of incense. The priest would take fire from the altar of burnt offering, bring it to the altar of incense, and put it on that altar, and then sprinkle incense on that fire, and the smoke of the incense then would enter within the veil and come up, as it were, into the nostrils of God, and would be to him a sweet odor. That's the offering that David is talking about here in verse 2. And this offering of incense was a symbol of the prayers of God's people. We learn that from Revelation chapter 5. First, Revelation chapter 5, verse 8 Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So the golden bowls full of incense are the prayers of the saints. And you find it again in Revelation chapter 8, verse 3. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. 
So this incense coming up into the nostrils of God uh, symbolized the prayers of God's people coming up to God from their place on earth. And these prayers then being a sweet odor to God, a, something acceptable to him, something pleasing to him. And what we see as we look at this altar of incense in Revelation 5 and 8 is that these prayers are also shown to be effective. In both of those chapters, in chapter 5, this offering of the prayers of the saints is in connection with the Lamb of God opening the seal with the scroll with seven seals. So the opening of this scroll was in response to the prayers of the saints. And in Revelation 8, it's similar. The uh, prayers are offered and then the angel who offers those prayers calls upon the trumpets to be blown, calls for the trumpets to be blown. And those trumpets represent the judgments of God on the earth. This is the answer of God to the prayers of his saints for deliverance. So the the prayers are coming up to God. They are well-pleasing to him. And he responds to them with his judgment. And the idea of the incense then is that not only are the prayers of his people acceptable to him, but as they are acceptable to him, he also answers them. They become effectual prayers. We see one more instance, at least of this, in the New Testament, and that is in Luke chapter 1, when Zacharias was offering incense in the temple. It was at that time of the offering of incense, the offering of the prayers of God's people, that the angel Gabriel came and appeared to him and told him about the birth of John. So this birth of John was also part of God's answer to the prayers of his people. John is the forerunner of their Messiah. When David therefore says, let my prayer come before you as incense, he's saying, let my prayer be acceptable in your sight. And in its acceptableness, answer me. Let my prayer be effective. Give to me what I ask. Then in the second line, I think David is basically repeating this idea, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice, the lifting up of the hands was a posture of prayer in the Old Testament, and the evening sacrifice that he refers to here, I think, is the uh, sacrifice again of the incense on the altar of incense. But he gives us just a little bit uh, more detail about this. First of all, he he does call this uh, incense an offering. And so what he's saying here is that this is an act of worship, As he comes into the presence of God, he bows down, he humbles himself before the face of God. He he brings an offering, a gift to the Lord, the gift of his prayers. And he wants God to uh, find that gift acceptable and to answer his prayers. But this incense was also offered morning and evening. You can find that in Exodus chapter 30, by the way. 
In Exodus chapter 30, there was an offering of incense in the morning and another offering of incense in the evening. And so the question is, why does David mention the evening offering rather than the morning offering, or rather than both together? And I'm not certain about this, but I would like to suggest anyway that David has something like this in mind, Psalm 30, verse 5, Psalm 30, verse 5, where he says this, His anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And perhaps what David has in mind here then is a, a penitential prayer, a prayer of confession and a prayer of repentance. And he's saying to God, let my prayer come to you as an acceptable prayer of penitence. And let it bring then the dawning of the joy of your salvation. So that's what he's saying then in this first part. Basically, hear my prayer. Let it be acceptable to you. Answer me in your grace and loving kindness. Now this offering of incense, we should remember, and that's a very important part of it, could be made only after offering on the altar of burnt offering, and only by a priest. The altar of bur- on the altar of burnt offering were off- offered all those animal sacrifices which depicted atonement. And the priest, of course, was a figure for our Lord Jesus Christ as our priest. And so behind all of this lies that depiction of the way of salvation that we see in the tabernacle and temple, that there is one way only to enter into the house of God through the blood of atonement, and that there is only one who can bring us along that way, and that is the priest, the one undefiled and holy priest who offers himself and who becomes, through his offering of himself, our intercessor also, in the presence of God, the one who prays for us as we pray here on earth. Let's go on then to the prayer, or the first part of David's prayer in verses 3 to 5. Those three verses belong together, and I think the basic idea here is Keep me from falling into sin. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. That's the basic idea of these petitions in verses 3 to 5. And he prays first with regard to his mouth. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And he creates for us here a picture, an image of the mouth as, you might say, a prison cell, and the lips as the door of that prison cell. And he says to the Lord, set a guard at that door, set a watch over my mouth, so that evil words may not escape. Don't let me speak any evil Be present with me at all times to keep evil from flowing out of my mouth. And he prays this because 
in the circumstances of affliction by his enemies, he may well be tempted into sin. His enemies are afflicting him, they are making his life miserable, and he may well be uh, tempted to respond to those enemies wickedly, to hate them, to uh, respond to them with the same kinds of evil words that they have spoken to and against him, to do harm to them, which is not justified by the law of God, to, to respond to them in the way that they have dealt with him. There are commandments that God gives us to love our enemies, to pray for those who curse us, to uh, bless those who are against us. God gives us these commandments, and David is saying, do not let me then fall into sin in these temptations which come into my life because of my enemy. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Do not let any evil word escape from my mouth. But in the next petition, then, he goes even deeper to his heart. Because if God only sets a guard upon his mouth and does no more for him, then there may still be evil in his heart. Evil in his heart against his enemies. Evil in his heart even against God and rebelling against God's way and complaining of, to God of his will for his life and refusing to accept that will of, of God for himself. And so he, he goes to his heart now and he says, Do not incline my heart to any evil thing. You are the Lord of the heart as well as the Lord of the mouth. And you have power to move the hearts of kings as you will and to move my heart as you will. Do not let any evil desire or any evil inclination come into my heart. So he he goes to the heart. Purify my heart. Take out of my heart all evil desires and evil inclinations so that I may be free from that sin which would otherwise perhaps come out of my mouth. And then also he refers to the behavior in the next line, to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity. So he's touching first on his mouth, then on his heart, and then on all his behavior. And he says, in all these things, guard me against sin. Do not let me uh, speak or desire or be inclined to or practice anything that is wicked. Because in thus doing, he would become a partaker with the men who work iniquity with his enemies. To practice wicked works with men who work iniquity. He does not want to be unequally yoked with the wicked. He does not want to be partaker of their sins. We have uh, him talking about this in Psalm 26. Psalm 26. Where we read this. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers, 
and will not sit with the wicked. That's the kind of idea that lies behind this prayer. Do not let me practice any wicked works. Keep me from the company of the wicked, where that temptation will be too powerful for me. I do not want to be partaker in any way, therefore, of the evil works of those who are attacking me and doing iniquity against me. And then finally, do not let me eat of their delicacies. Now, if you look at some of the commentators, you will find that some of the commentators say about this, that this merely designates the idea of fellowship. Do not let me sit down at table with them to have fellowship with them. But I think it probably goes a little bit farther than that. I think that's part of it. He does not want to be uh, in fellowship with the workers of iniquity, but he also does not want to fall into their enjoyment of sin. I think that's what he means by eating of their delicacies. Eating in the scriptures is sometimes a symbol of delighting in sin. You have it in um, Psalm 14. Verse 4, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? That is, who eat up my people with the same kind of enjoyment that they have in eating bread? Do not let me, he says, Enjoy evil the way they enjoy evil. And in Proverbs 9, verse 5, we have the opposite side of this coin, that eating uh, can also be a symbol of enjoyment, of righteousness, of obeying the commandments of God. In, In Proverbs 9, wisdom personified as a woman here in this chapter says to the simple one, come, Eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. So wisdom says, come, eat with me. That is, partake of the righteousness, the fear of God, the obedience to his commandments that you will find in my house. And so what David is saying here in verse 4, I think, is, Do not let me be like those wicked men who take pleasure in wickedness, who have their delight in wickedness. Let me rather be like Moses, who refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Do not let me eat of their delicacies. Do not let me take their sensuous delight in transgressing your commandments. Now it's in verse 5 that we have the most striking of David's petitions. Let the righteous strike me. It shall be a kindness and let him rebuke me. It shall be as excellent oil. And what he's saying here is, first of all, I don't want the company of wicked men who will accept me on their terms. If I uh, live with them and have fellowship with them on their terms, they'll be perfectly happy to accept me. 
But let me rather find company among the righteous who will not accept me and my sins, who will instead strike me and rebuke me for my sins. He's asking God then so to work among the righteous that when he is in their company, these righteous men will be observant of his ways and will say to him when they see him or hear him sin, you mustn't do that, and even chastise him for his sins. He says, this will be a kindness to me if the righteous strike me. This will be as excellent oil, the oil that a host poured on the heads, head of his guests in order to refresh him and restore him and make him welcome to his house. Here it is, that oil being poured on the head of David to restore and refresh him. But the oil is the rebuke of the righteous. And the word that David uses here for strike is a very strong word. It's the word that you find in Judges 5, verse 26, where we read that Deborah took a tent peg, a nail from her tent, and pounded it into the head of Sisera. She pounded it. That's the word. And you have it again in, I think it's Psalm 74, or 79, 79, rather, where uh, Asaph is praying. No, it's Psalm 74. I'm sorry about that. I get those two psalms confused because both are about the the destruction of Jerusalem. Psalm 74, where Asaph says about the uh, men of Babylon, the soldiers of Babylon, who are destroying the city of Jerusalem, that they seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees, and now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. He's talking about the carved work of the temple, and they break it down. That's the word here again in Psalm 141. So we might almost translate this as, let the righteous pound me, or let the righteous knock me down. It shall be a kindness, and let him rebuke me. It shall be as excellent oil. It's a very necessary prayer for us, people of God. Part of the means of grace for us in the uh, church of God today is the rebukes and chastisements of our fellow saints. And we need to be ready both to administer such rebukes and chastisements and to receive them from our fellow saints. We should be able to pray sincerely with David, let the righteous knock me down, it shall be a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it shall be as excellent oil. This is one of the ways that God has provided for the well-being of his church and for our well-being to keep us from sin. And we need to be ready to use it and to receive it. Let not my head refuse, David says. David is recognizing there our prideful disinclination 
to receive such rebukes from our fellow saints. I don't need you to tell me what to do. Just leave me alone. What I do is none of your business. That's the kind of automatic reaction we have to those who rebuke us or who chastise us. It's not at all what David is saying here. Let not my head refuse. Because they mean kindness. And if I heed them, it will indeed be kindness to me and excellent oil. So you see that David is asking God to set all these guards around him against falling into temptation. Guard my mouth. Keep my heart from evil inclinations and evil desires. Do not let me practice wickedness with the workers of iniquity. Do not let me enjoy the sensuous pleasures of sin. And give me righteous men around me who will rebuke me and chastise me if I do sin. He's very urgent then to be kept from sin as he deals with the temptations that his enemies are bringing into his life. Don't let me respond to them in a wicked way. Now the last line of verse 5 is is a difficult line to interpret and you'll find, if you look at the commentaries, some variety of opinion on this. Here's how I think it should be understood, but I wouldn't uh, uh, defend this as the only possible interpretation of it. I think what David means here when he talks about the deeds of the wicked is the deeds of the wicked to which he is being tempted first. And he's saying, my prayer is against being drawn into their wicked ways. My prayer is against their wicked deeds for myself. And that makes good sense then in the connection of that line with verse 5. He's praying that these righteous men may be about him to rebuke him and chastise him because he says, my prayer is against those wicked deeds. I don't want to be part of those wicked deeds. I need them there so that I do not become partaker of their wicked deeds. And these are the wicked deeds then also of the enemies who are afflicting him and oppressing him and he's saying, I do not want to be of the party of those wicked men who are doing all this wickedness against me and my people. I want to be rather with the party of the righteous. And I will make my prayer against all their wicked deeds as well as against wicked deeds in myself. So that I may be among the righteous. So that my whole life may be free from sin and from the power of sin. And all this then committed to God as the only one who can help him in this uh, endeavor. That brings us to verse 6, the most difficult verse in the psalm. 
And um, again, very, very uh, difficult to know precisely what it means. The translation that we have here in the New King James is uh, very accurate in comparison to the Hebrew. There's really no adjustments that you would have to make to that translation to make it more accurate. So the, the question is, what exactly does David mean by this? And how does this fit in with the thought of the psalm? Well, I think, in the first place, he's talking about judgment on these, ju- uh, on these judges. Their judges are overthrown by the sides of the cliff. 2 Chronicles 25 gives us an example of the kind of judgment he's talking about. 2 Chronicles 25, verse 12, also the children of Judah took captive 10,000 alive, these are Edomites, brought them to the top of the rock and cast them down from the top of the rock so that they all were dashed in pieces. So it's an act of judgment against the Edomites. And you find in Luke chapter 4 that the Jews of Nazareth tried to do this to Jesus. When they were upset with his preaching in the synagogue there in Nazareth, they took him out of the village to the top of a cliff and they tried to throw him down from the top of that cliff. This was a a kind of judgment. And David is therefore talking about judgment on these judges. These judges, I think, are what he means by these judges, are judges who are judging him and his people, who are finding evil in him and who are wickedly oppressing and condemning him. And so he's talking about these judges, but notice he doesn't pray about it. He doesn't ask God to do this. He just simply says that they are overthrown by the sides of the cliff. And he says, they're judges. And then in the second line, they hear my words. And I think probably he's talking about the people over whom these judges have power, the rulers and so on of the people who have followed these judges, not rightly, but who have nevertheless been influenced by the wickedness of these judges. By the way, I'm kind of following John Calvin on this. Who have been influenced by these judges against David. And what he's saying here then is their judges, the judges of these men, have been overthrown by the sides of the cliff. And now these men, because their judges are overthrown, are able to hear my words. And my words are sweet or pleasant. They're able to hear me, perhaps even, utter the prayer of verses 3 to 5 where I ask God to guard me against doing any evil to them. And some of the commentators use as an example here the fact that while Saul was persecuting David, he had most of Israel on his side. But after Saul was dead and his son Ishbosheth was dead also, 
All of Israel, including the followers of Saul, came to David and willingly made him king. And David accepted them, received them as his subjects, without judging them, without punishing them, without chastising them in any way for their following of Saul. His words to them were pleasant or sweet words. So that's probably, I think, what is meant here, though it's, as I said, a very difficult verse to interpret. In fact, some commentators find it so difficult that they say the text has been corrupted, the Hebrew text has been corrupted through transmission, and there's really no hope that we're ever going to get to any proper understanding of the verse. But, but we have to take the verse, I think, if we find it here. There are no real problems with the Hebrew text that are known, and so we have to try to find a biblical meaning for the verse. The judge is over, overthrown by the sides of the cliff, and they hear my words, for they are sweet. Some of my enemies hear my pleasant words and come to me. And then finally, verses 7 to 10, where David talks about the oppression of his enemies and prays for God's deliverance from it. Our bones, he says, are scattered at the mouth of the grave as when one plows and breaks up the earth. Here we can refer to Psalm 79. I think I've got the right one this time. Psalm 79, verse 2 and 3. The dead bodies of your servants they have given as food for the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. Their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. Now that's a different time. That's the destruction of Jerusalem, and this is the time of David. But David is saying here, perhaps he's even using a metaphor here, he's saying that we are so greatly oppressed and afflicted that it is as if our bodies have been uh, we have been killed by our enemies and our bodies have been left out in the field to be eaten by the beasts and the birds. And all that's left of our bodies is the bones. We have not been granted honorable burial. And then he compares that. I think this is the meaning of that. He compares that to a plowed field. And he said, if you would stand back and and look at this field where our bones are scattered, it would look as if someone had plowed the field. So what he's saying is that so many of us have been killed and treated so contemptuously that it looks as if our bones are a plowed field. He's, the oppression then is a very great oppression, a very a great trouble that God's people under David have come to. David is grieving over that trouble. And it's in that setting of his great grief over the trouble of God's people that he asks God, don't let me come into the kind of sins that my enemies are committing against me. My eyes then are upon you, O God the Lord. Here we get the picture of David fixing his eyes on God and waiting for God to answer. 
and saying, I'll keep my eyes fixed on you until I hear the answer that you will give to my petitions. He's waiting expectantly for God to come to him. In you I take refuge. You are my fortress. You are my shield. I hide in you so that no enemy may overtake me and destroy me. Do not leave my soul destitute or naked. Do not leave my soul without defense against these enemies. Keep me from the snares they have laid for me and from the traps of the workers of iniquity. Do not let me fall again into temptations. Do not let me be taken by their snares. Instead, let them be taken by their own snares. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I escape safely. So he does pray against the wicked. Let them fall into their own nets. But the Lord has guarded his heart and his mouth so that he will speak no evil. And he prays righteously for the Lord to bring judgment upon these wicked men and to let him escape from them. This is, should be, people of God, our prayer too. We should find this a very relevant prayer for our own times. Whenever enemies afflict us and oppress us, persecute us, mock us, insult us because of our Christianity, because of our faith, we should be praying urgently. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity. Do not let me eat of their delicacies. Let the righteous strike me. It shall be a kindness. When we pray it, we pray it with and in our Lord Jesus Christ. With him, because he suffered the same oppression and affliction while he was on earth. And prayed this prayer. When he was tempted in the wilderness by the devil, set a guard, O Lord, over the door of my mouth. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing. Do not let me eat of his delicacies. He was tempted when he had after the transfiguration to set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem knowing what would befall him there. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing. He was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, let this cup pass from me. Do not let any evil thing escape from my mouth. Do not let any evil desire or inclination be in my heart. Let the righteous strike me. It shall be a kindness. And he prayed, Undoubtedly, throughout his life, especially the years of public ministry, keep me from the snares they have laid for me and from the traps of the workers of iniquity. The wicked leaders of the Jews were constantly laying snares for him. Always, throughout his whole ministry, they were constantly laying these snares for him, hoping to trip him up, to let him, to make him fall into sin, to get him into trouble with the authorities, or to make him transgress against the law 
of God or to say something that was contrary to the law of God. They were always interested, not at first so much in in destroying his life, but simply in making him fall. He prayed, keep me from the snares they have laid for me. So we pray with him, but we pray in him, for he is the great high priest who has gone into the holy place and into the most holy place ahead of us, there to make intercession for us every day and every hour of every day so that we may be kept and so that when we come to the throne of grace we may find grace to help in time of need. May God bless his word.